little thought experiment. You take all of today's DeFi protocols, Uniswap, Aave, Synthetics, you take all you take all the blue chip DeFi protocols, or screw it, you take all of them, you fork them, you add a KYC requirement. What happens to the flow of capital? This episode is brought to you by Core, the brand new non-custodial wallet that offers a seamless and secure experience on Avalanche. You'll hear more about Core later in the show. We're back with another roundup of Empire Santi, my man. How are we doing today? That's a nice, that's a nice blue collar shirt. Are you, uh, are you traveling today? You're looking like a little preppier than usual. Looking nice. <laughs> but thank you. Uh, is this your way of telling me you're excited to see me? Or, uh, I am excited. You're excited to, yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, I am to, excited to see you. Uh, yes. Hopefully this time airlines don't rug us. Um, but uh, nonetheless, um, I'm going through Heathrow and Heathrow has, uh, 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 I don't know, complicated airport nonetheless. But yeah, I'm excited. Excited for the roundup. Excited to, to to see you out there. And so, anyways, yeah, a lot nice of fun. good yeah, things to be excited. Good about. little good little sushi din lined up. I'm excited. Uh, although Mike just rugged us. Mike just bailed on the dinner. So it's uh, you and me. Have a cute little date. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> can you uh, can you see my nose? I don't know if you can see this. I got so sunburnt. My nose is completely peeling. So that's my uh, that's my. I need, tell I need me some moisturizer. It's like t- tell me you've been on vacation without telling me you've been on vacation. <laughs> exactly exactly so uh all right man uh we're recording this on wednesday morning instead of thursday uh, afternoon because you're traveling uh eth is pumping crypto is pumping because cpi came in below expectations at 8.5 percent. just kind of funny that uh, an 8.5 percent cpi print will actually make things uh <laughs> the market sees that as a good thing but eth is right now at its highest levels since early june i think i know your how you're going to respond to this question but I will ask what I ask you on every roundup, which is, how are you feeling today? I'm feeling very excited. Um, I, uh, I've seen really good quality teams um, on the early stage side come back. Uh, and and it's always great to see really talented founders. I keep seeing it in every episode, but I always am truly amazed by like, <clears throat> these are founders with multiple level exits. Valuation is super compelling. The use case, I think, is super interesting. Um, you know, people... There's, I guess, a lot of reasons why founders in Web2 land would still be on the fence to come into this kind of wild west, uncertain space. But, you know, it's it's still, um, I think it's uh, the most exciting thing from my perspective. Um, obviously, um, you know, you combine that with, there's been a very eventful week uh, with hacks and, um, you know, the tornado situation. But I think overall, I'm feeling... Um, uh, I was reflecting on kind of my call, which was uh, that I felt that the bottom would be close to a thousand, if in and around that range. We're obviously up to eighteen hundred now, so like ETH has rallied eighty percent or plus since since that kind of bottom. Uh, I'm not prepared to say that we've it's the local top, local bottom. I don't know, but um, it's um, yeah, you know, it's it's always good to see that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, you've been, you've had a hell of a last two weeks, right? What, six, seven, eight angel deals in the last two weeks. Uh, does it feel like things are, is this just because you're seeing a higher quality of teams? Does this become the, is this because the valuations have finally come down to levels in the private markets that you've been waiting mm-hmm. to see? Why has your, I mean, you had like two or three months where you're pretty quiet on the, on the angel side of things. Why has it ramped up? Well, I think the, it's a combination of really quality teams at very attractive valuations. Um, you know, sub 20, sub 15 million, um, valuations, uh, for a really good team. I mean, you're almost in the money in human capital. Uh, if, if the, like, um, so that to me is always really exciting. Um, you know, yeah, I don't have like a favorite deal. I just, you asked me this before the show. It's just, um, I, I just get incredibly excited when I see a two time founder who's exited to like Google or Facebook or what have you say, Hey, you know what? I've been thinking about Web3. I've been thinking about crypto since 2014, 2016. It captivated my imagination. I want to go. I want to I want to finally build something now because I've observed the last year, all the NFT stuff, all the gaming stuff. It's not perfect, but I think I can fix it. And to me, that's like, it's pretty cool. Yeah, it's, It really totally. sets us up for the next cycle where a lot of core infrastructure is being built. Like I was talking to one of your uh, reporters who reached out and... She was. She asked a good question, which was like, "Hey, why, why Web three? Like, like you know, what is this like? Our digital experiences, like, why are we spending so much time online?" I'm like, "Look, the concept of the metaverse is not new. 
but there are certain things that are really enhanced by this idea of being creators going directly to uh, you know their audiences content the quality of the contents that will be produced is higher because you don't have to think about you know rent seekers taking a huge toll and so i think all that sets us up really nicely for the next cycle and so like why do you get so excited about gaming and i'm so well because like really good games are going to take two three four years to develop and that's going to coincide really nicely with you know scalability technology really being battle tested and supporting a billion users so yeah, yeah. Cool. It feels like in terms of the markets, it feels like we, uh, on on one hand, it's like this David versus Goliath moment. We've got uh, David in one corner, which is the ETH merge. Uh, and then in the other corner, you've got record inflation, sanctions on crypto, tornado, USDC blacklist, Ukraine, uh, Taiwan, rising mm-hmm. interest rates, gas shortages, food shortages, massive credit card debt in the US. Uh, but just like David versus Goliath, I think uh, David can pull this one out. So yeah, the crypto crypto space has always had. I mean, this is nothing new necessarily. You know, in crypto, we always have these regular these walls of worry that we constantly need to climb. Uh, and every sequential wave feels like worse than the prior one. Uh, more real, more in your face. But yeah, it's just kind of. I don't know. Maybe for newcomers, I don't mean to be dismissive. Maybe some some of these things are actually pretty relevant and. I don't want to like, I just want to put them in their proper perspective because you almost always invariably feel it like the problem that you have in front of you is worse than anything you've ever felt. And, you know, it's like, is it really? Um, I have my own takes on Tornado and some of this stuff, which I, I think on the margin is quite positive um, if you look at it. But uh, we'll yeah. save that. For All right, let's get into it then. I want to I want to hear those takes. Yeah. So here's 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 what I want to cover today. Uh, first things first: start with Tornado Cash. Second, get into USDC and the blacklisted accounts. Third, Coinbase earnings. Fourth, uh, maybe touch on a couple of uh, smaller things like the Curve front end hack. Uh, Uniswap approved a 10% protocol fee for three different pools. And then ETH, uh, proof of work chain, this like uh, remaining POW chain that's uh, kind of hanging on from the uh, uh, before the merge as we lead up into the merge. So we'll see if we get to those last few things, but definitely want to talk about Tornado Cash. Uh, on Monday, the Ethereum privacy protocol Tornado Cash and 45 related ETH addresses were added to the US Treasury's OFAC list. What this means is that all assets uh, that belong to or interact with any of those as, uh, addresses are going to be frozen. It becomes a federal offense to engage in any transaction with that uh, with that address. So the statement stated that Tornado Cash has been used to launder over. This, this is the reason why OFAC is coming down and adding them to this list. Is that uh, uh, Tornado Cash has been used to launder over seven billion dollars since its creation uh, just two or three years ago. 455 million from uh, Lazarus, uh, Lazarus growth, um, uh, 96 million from the Harmony Bridge hack, uh, 7 million from the Nomad hack. Basically, what happens is like hackers uh, in any of these hacks, when you get the capital, you end up sending it through a mixer or something like Tornado Cash. Um, and that's that's kind of the argument here. I'm, I'm know that you and me will have some good counter arguments to this. I think, I think uh, you'll have some interesting counter arguments, I would assume, but basically this executive order uh, followed by USDC blacklisting kind of opens up this Pandora's box in terms of like regulation, in terms of DeFi's future, uh, permission DeFi, KYC, AML DeFi. But before we get into that, um, I just want to get your take on, on this whole situation. I think if it's helpful, I can also get into maybe a little bit of background in like in terms of tumblers and mixers and privacy coins and like tornado caches history. But at a high level, I just want to get your take on, on the situation before going into some of the details. Yeah. I mean, I understand the motivation given all the hacks and um, as you point that out, as soon as the hack happens, they, they typically use tornado to try to, you know, mix the coins and then eventually cash out. Um, and so I understand the motivation. Uh, although the actual implementation of it is going to be tricky because then of course what happens like every pool every protocol every wallet that has touched uh you know funds that are basically tainted is that does that now mean that they're going to be frozen or frozen until kyc'd or um and so uh, of course crypto always finds a very uh, immediate response to it and there was someone who a madman out there who was sending uh you know, tornado ETH to a lot of the known 
um, .eth addresses of public figures like Ben Horowitz from A6Z and a lot of the crypto kind of, um, you know, notable personalities in crypto. And so what does that mean? Then are you going to, you know, blacklist that wallet too? And like everything, it's a very tricky situation. Like I think, you know, sometimes you feel like this policy is like taking a chainsaw to do a a micro surgery. Um, And so I, I am quite curious to see what the second order effects, third order effects are of this order and what that means for, you know, other stuff like REN, for instance, uh, you know, the REN pools, um, um, you know, to my knowledge, a lot of the Bitcoin that is being sent using REN, you know, has been okay. And exchanges can receive that. Does that mean now that they won't? Um, what happens like OpenSea now, for instance, is all also taken action. There's a whole host of other companies that have taken very quick action. Um, as a result of this order. So, you know, most notably uh, GitHub taking down all the repos of the contributors to Tornado um, that puts into question kind of free speech and open source code and a prior ruling, I think. Um, And so, yeah, there's going to be a lot to unpack here uh, and we'll save a lot of this discussion for a regulatory debate that we're going to have with Jake and Rebecca later this month. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are a couple... um constitutional rights here that are that are actually interesting to to think about one is uh what is it the the uh fourth um i think it's the fourth which says um which talks about like seizure of assets so that's that's an interesting one the other the other kind of interesting topic here is like is code uh free speech right and so like can you re- uh can you restrict freedom of code um, and can you restrict someone's like just basically writing code and is that freedom of speech and you're right like some of these other what you're seeing is like the second order implications, I think we don't even know, right? If someone, you mentioned someone's getting like OFACT or like tornado cashed, right? Like 0.1 ETH is getting sent to these big docs wallets like mm-hmm. Shaq and Beeple and Randy Zuckerberg and Ben Horowitz and Brian Armstrong. What about if someone uh, deposits ETH that's been transferred from tornado cash into an LP pool on Uniswap where you have tokens, you've never put your capital into tornado cash, but like you're in that pool. Are you now at risk, right? Uh, what if you... Um, if you're a miner, and like if you're it, a validator, like exactly. you get a deposit, and then all of a sudden you validate a block, does that mean that you're, you know, what does that mean? Um, and so, yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the 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 obvious pushback here is not everyone that has used Tornado is a criminal. Um, yeah. You know, when I I didn't end up investing in Tornado, I looked at the round because you know I think privacy is something that is I think an inalienable human right. I think it's important to have that in in crypto. Um, and privacy preserving solutions that are also regulatorily compliant are possible. And, you know, to my knowledge, Tornado has, if you, for instance, send funds that have been interacting Tornado back to an exchange, I think there is a way to prove the the proof. There's like a proof that Tornado generates. If Coinbase says, Hey, wait a minute, where's, where are these funds coming from? There is a way to de-anonymize that and trace back the origin of funds. To my knowledge. Um, there is. And chain analysis and, also has ways to do it. Correct. Elliptic has ways to do it. Yeah. And so for me, to me, then then that's sort of the solution. Like I don't see necessarily a problem with uh, the functionality here. Meaning if you're not willing to provide that record, then you kind of assume that that is uh, criminal, fraudulent, or suspicious behavior. But otherwise, I, th- I think you need to allow people to to produce that proof and show in the same manner that, you know, sometimes when you send a wire, how many times does a bank freeze it? <laughs> it never goes through. They call you. They ask for more documentation. I think we need to think about the what, what those protocols and procedures look like for funds that have used these privacy-preserving solutions. Because, hey, Tornado is not, not the first or the last one that will exist. Um, and so... You know, again, um, it, it. You know, I think there is a future where you have privacy in crypto, in crypto, and at the same time, regulators and law enforcement feels comfortable with that um, because you can prove origin of you know funds and and and, and whatnot. Yeah. I, so let, let's give a little bit of background just on privacy protocols and tumblers and mixers and privacy coins and things like that, because I think it's important just to understand 
what they are. And, and, and so that if we can understand what they are and what they're actually doing right now and kind of what the landscape looks like, then we can start to think about, okay, well, in the next bull run, will privacy actually be a big trend? Um, and maybe what are the pros and cons of investing in different privacy-related protocols? So, I mean, privacy has really been a topic in crypto since the release of Bitcoin, right? So, so from Bitcoin to uh, pseudonymous accounts, uh, people trading cash for like hard-filled hard drives, Zcash launch in 2016, different privacy chains, protocols, they really come in. There are really two different primary privacy techniques, right? Mixers and then privacy coins. Privacy coins are like um, Zcash, Monero. Monero. They include, yeah, like zero knowledge proofs, stealth signatures, ring signatures, things like that. Um, And then there's tumblers and mixers, right? So Tornado Cash is a tumbler uh, or a mixer, right? So a tumbler mixer service is a service in which you can actually uh, for anyone who hasn't used Tornado Cash, you basically mix traceable coins with other, you know, kind of like quote unquote clean tokens in an effort to make it harder to trace the original source of those tokens. So you can kind of think of it like a blender. You put in the coins that you want to anonymize. Those coins get kind of chopped up into different pieces, mixed with a bunch of other coins, and then it gets sent to a new address. Uh, and then to make it even harder to trace, a lot of the tumblers actually randomize the amount that they pay you back. So you'll still get your your full value back. So if I put in one ETH, I'm still going to get one ETH back. But instead of being sent one ETH, it might be like four or five or six different transactions of ETH in separate transactions. And because these mixers work by distributing coins kind of at random, there's really no telling where, where your coin actually came from. Uh, and with Tornado Cash, it launched, I mean, it's been around for like three years. It's, would you say, Santi, it's the most popular mixer protocol? At least in Ethereum, yeah. I mean, yeah, I think in it, generally, yes. I think in general, right? So it's a mixer protocol on Ethereum. It accepts ETH and USDC token deposits. Uh, basically, it's the goal is to break the link between the source and the destination of token uh, of token deposits. Um, reason being, if you so, I think I think maybe what the government would say here is that if I am sending my my capital into a mixer, uh, I'm doing something illegal. But there's a lot of different reasons why you, because everything is public on the blockchain and, and traceable if i pay for a service in eth like let's say i go buy something and i spend a hundred bucks for my metamask wallet now someone knows what my now someone knows my wallet and they can basically see all of my financial history because everything's mm-hmm. on this public ledger uh let's say i want to anonymously donate some eth like vitalik did uh, vitalik used tornado cash to have to donate his ETH, or he would have been doxxed. Ultimately, he'd end up getting doxxed there. Uh, if you get paid in crypto and you don't want your employer to know all of your financial details, right? Something like Tornado would would come in. Now, I think what OFAC uh, would would point to, and I think what they what they did point to with this OFAC list is there was a report by Chainalysis that re- was released last month. It said that illicit addresses account in 2021 accounted for 12 percent of capital sent to mixers this year that's doubled it's now 20 about 25 or 24 percent of funds that have been sent to mixers uh, are from illicit addresses so that's a quarter of addresses going into these mixers is actually uh-huh. uh kind of illicit and and, and elite from illegal addresses so i think that's probably the argument however anytime one of these it's it becomes a game of whack-a-mole right you you knock one of these down you pick them back up we saw that with things like pirate bay back in the day uh I remember, there's this one user quote. I remember he, you know, the, the user says, I remember one time when they took down the original Pirate Bay URL, the .org site, the next day you could go on Google and find 100 identical Pirate Bay mirror sites with the same torrents. So I'm a, I think the, the same thing will end up happening here with Tornado Cash, but I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm already seeing a couple of kind of copycat tornadoes popping up. But I mean, importantly, the smart contract still works, so you can't take that down. Yeah. You could, I mean, of course... Right now, I mean, the, the code, the code for anyone it. that has access can just be copy pasted and redeployed Correct. on on ETH too if it Correct. gets taken down. So, um, I guess yeah, it's more complicated uh, because users now know instead of something like a Pirate Bay or like a, did you ever use LimeWire or like FrostWire? Now, because there's capital involved, users know they're kind of playing in riskier waters uh, if they interact with a mixer. The thing that is required for all of these mixers is a certain amount of capital to support the su- like sufficiently large and if you will to support the anonymity uh, like proof if you will because if you don't have enough you like pools if you will then it then it becomes easier to 
you know, I guess it becomes harder to anonymize. Um, so the analogy um, being like a a scale, right? Uh, the 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 efficacy of a privacy protocol is completely dependent on the number of users. Uh, mm-hmm. It's like if this if you're in a baseball stadium, the stands are full of fans. It's really 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 hard to pick out a single person uh, in, yeah. in that stadium. But if yeah, it's an empty stadium, stadium, you've got like seven yeah. people there. Yeah, it's uh, very easy to, to to find yeah. the fans. So yeah. yeah, my intuition is that uh, you know the regulators are just simply saying, look, it's being used by a the Lazarus group, which is tied to North Korea, that's an enemy of the state. That's in the sanctions list. And so let's just take it down. It's more, uh, even though technically you can, you know, you can use tools like chain analysis to, to DMX to kind of you know, understand where these funds are going and, and, and also, you know, put pressure on exchanges to make sure in the off ramps to make sure that, you know, it's harder for criminal activity to, to, um, you know, to cash out, if you will. But uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not candidly not not very surprised. Yeah. So after the announcement, GitHub suspended accounts associated with Tornado Cash, including the the co-founder Roman, um, Infura, Alchemy, uh, these kind of like centralized infrastructures of service companies in crypto uh, that are used by the majority of ETH wallets, blocked the Tornado RPC endpoints, meaning that these wallets could no longer interact with the Tornado contracts. Um, it, I, I think you sent uh, OpenSea is shutting down folks um, who who mm-hmm. uh, shutting down accounts who have had capital related to um, that that has gone through Tornado. I think you sent this tweet out. It makes you realize how much of crypto infrastructure is actually reliant on on some of these central centralized service mm-hmm. providers that can just make these these decisions by you know yeah, some I mean, executives in a room. Yeah, let's talk about. I mean, this I think is a reminder. Let's talk about the dependencies on AWS. For a lot of, let's talk about the dependencies yeah. on dns i mean technically you know dns is quasi decentralizing i'm not but but still like you know in many ways like curve finance got hacked uh and a few other front ends have been hacked because whether it's an inside job or just some careless security measures of of these of like of these co- web two companies uh, that are that are hosting the domain then it just it just becomes it's just further like I think puts I, I'm glad I, I'm not saying is I'm glad this happened but I think it's just a reminder that we there needs there's a whole lot of parts of the stack that still need to be decentralized if web3 is going to be resilient as we want it to be not because we want to go against you know like and, and do criminal activities it's purely because you know the road to decentralization is is a difficult one and it's going to take years to accomplish. All right, folks, this episode is brought to you by our friends at Avalanche and Ava Labs. They have just dropped a new crypto wallet called Core. You're going to be hearing a lot about it over the coming months. You can now be one of the first to try it out. Here's the reason I'm excited to partner with them on Empire. Right now, crypto wallets and browser extensions, they feel clunky. They feel non-intuitive. That's why Ava Labs built Core. It's a free non-custodial browser extension that gives Avalanche users a seamless and secure Web3 experience across the entire Avalanche ecosystem. Here are a few reasons to try Core. Here's what I'm experimenting with. Number one, Core has intuitive dashboards with a unified display for all of your NFT collections, all your crypto assets. You can execute asset swaps directly inside the wallet. It's a really nice experience. Uh, Maybe you wanna earn yield or borrow against your Bitcoin. Uh, but you don't want to do it on one of those C5 platforms right now. Core's native bridging functionality makes it really easy to bridge your Bitcoin to Avalanche's robust DeFi ecosystem. Last but not least, Core makes on-ramping super easy. You can convert dollars to crypto right now using the MoonPay integration. Just takes a few clicks. Download Core today using the link in the show notes. It's really, really nice. Uh, if you are interested in the Avalanche ecosystem at all, you have to be using Core. Download Core using the link below. Now, let's get back to the show. Yep. Yeah. Move on to USDC or anything else uh, on Tornado? No, I think we discovered it pretty much. <clears throat> cool. Uh, Circle, the issuer of the US, of USDC, froze... I think it was like seventy-five thousand dollars worth of USDC. That feels small, but maybe it's just seventy-five k. 
big hoopla for just $75,000, but uh, $75,000 worth of USDC that was linked to about 81 newly blacklisted addresses on Monday. One of the addresses uh, belongs to Tornado Cash's USDC pool. This means that those who deposited their USDC on Tornado Cash may not be able to withdraw their funds. Um, Jeremy Allaire came out with a, the CEO of Circle, came out with a post kind of explaining why. He said, yesterday, US Treasury designated for sanctions ETH addresses associated with Tornado Cash as a U.S. regulated financial financial institution subject to the Bank Secrecy Act requirements. Circle, together with our partner Coinbase, restricted the movement of USDC funds in these sanctioned addresses. Uh, it is likely that nearly all responsible registered virtual asset service providers also took steps to block customers with transacting with these addresses or face charges of willfully avoiding U.S. sanctions compliance obligations, which can bring up to 30 years in prison. Big federal offense right there. Okay. Um, and so that so that's the reason that they did it. Um, I did some research and, and shout out to Garrett, our producer, did some research into blacklisting tokens because I realized I didn't fully understand what it means to blacklist a token. Um, and I thought it'd be interesting to share here. So how can addresses be blacklisted from receiving or sending certain tokens? Here's how it works. Tokens like USDC, uh, this is a good reminder that they're just uh, they're just simply numbers stored on an Ethereum token contract, right? It's We kind of have these ideas of like, you've got your MetaMask, you almost have an image of like tokens sitting in a MetaMask wallet. That is obviously not how it works. The token contracts using like ERC-20 standard contain parameters and data like token supply and inflation rate and the state of ownership balances, aka which addresses own how many tokens. When you send a token to another wallet, so I send you a bunch of USDC, the token there's not a token that actually leaves my MetaMask wallet. There's not like a, there's not some token that that sends a, that moves across the ether and gets into your wallet. Instead, your private key signs a transaction that calls the transfer function of a token smart contract, which then updates the ownership balances uh, via just debiting and crediting different accounts. Right. So your MetaMask wallet kind of looks like it contains these tokens, but that's not actually the case. The wallet has a public-private key pair. Your MetaMask pings each ETH address token to uh, or token contract to find ownership balances that match your public address. So that's I think that's important understanding because what what a blacklist means is that because the tokens are contracts, you can add different parameters, and that's how USDC has the ability to blacklist addresses. Every time an address is about to make a transaction involving USDC, the USDC token smart contract checks a list of addresses to see if the sender or the receiver is on the list. And if the transaction, if so, if they're on the list, the transaction gets blocked. And this, in effect, freezes the balance of the listed account. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I, th I think that's just an important reminder of like, here's how this stuff actually works. Here's how it can get blacklisted. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious if you think that this USDC blacklist is, you know, a lot of people in DeFi were panicking and freaking out and like the impact on Maker is massive and on the Uniswap pools, really, really big impact. I, I for one, think it's kind of overblown, but I'm curious how big of a concern you think this is. Well, you don't know until it happens. I, mean, I think I'd say, I, I think I'd say short-term overblown. I don't think anything's going to, short-term overblown, long-term, we should be very cautious in making uh, doing things to move away from from these regulated entities. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, crypto's always been a story, a tale of like two cities. One where we value decentralization, but we continue to use a lot of centralized solutions. And candidly, like, I'm not I'm not saying that in a facetious manner. I think it's just sort of the state of, of affairs. And at some point, there's, you know, there's a practical component of it. Um, you know, USDC is a, a widely used stablecoin. Uh, it touches so many protocols across DeFi. Basically, if USDC were to shut down, then you kill DeFi then and there. Um, maybe you reset with some sort of decentralized stablecoin. It does place emphasis, again, on what is the Achilles heel of the space, which is central, like, censor, it, it puts in a, censorship, not like, um, non-seizure resistant coins. And... Right. You know, yeah. Um, I mean, if if Circle blacklisted all, if OFAT, if the Treasury came after Circle, told them that they had to basically blacklist all of the protocols that had interacted with any kind of like quote unquote dirty, dirty USDC, 
uh, that that would probably be the best attack on DeFi they could do. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, 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 would, pretty, it, it would destroy ninety eight point ninety nine point eight percent of of DeFi use cases right now. And I'm sure we would rebuild, but um, well, I mean, I mean yeah. this is a choke point. And so, well, you look at other solutions, um, Rye and, and and a few others. You know, maybe Frax, but Frax is USDC and uh, as part of. And so, again, it, it's it's something that long term we need. Uh, truly decentralized stable coins. Um, so I don't know much to say here. I, I, I'm in sort of wait and see mode. I'm really curious what, uh, what the second third order effects are here. And, and yeah, a lot of times they might issue, uh, some sort of, you know, action, but sometimes maybe they're not seeing the full implication of it. And I think the crypto community has been good at like addressing these like front on, like immediately there were concerns or that you're listing what happens to X, Y, Z. And, you know, we don't really know. And so again, it's, it's sort of a wait and see mode. The best we can hope is for, you know, constituents within crypto that are in, in touch with regulators can explain to them perhaps a bit more of the technology and help them see kind of the folks like Jake, Rebecca, um, the, the blockchain association, those guys do coin center. They do great work to, to explain the technology to these folks and make sure that maybe instead of using a, you know, like a, a chainsaw, they, they use a finer <laughs> knife to really cut through and, and, and regulate and, and, you know, yeah. crack down on, on criminal activity. I th- so I think it's, um, with with regards to decentralized stables, I think it's a reminder that OFAC can can really sanction anything, right? They can sanction a smart contract, a DAO, an entity, a protocol, a thing. They can make it illegal to use, to own, to help, to maintain, uh, like they do with drugs and, and and tornado. This can apply to really anything. I think the key piece of this is like whether or not there is someone to actually sanction behind the scenes, right? So like with USDC. Yep. They go to the executive team at Circle and they go talk to Jeremy Lair and they say, hey, you're facing time in prison for this. Uh, the yep. question is whether or not the stable coin or the protocol actually has the ability to blacklist the contracts and whether or not there's someone or something to go after behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why you see a lot of these protocols racing to decentralize form DAOs and foundations and things like that and mm-hmm. get get, aw- get away from having a, a core a core team. Yeah. Let me just put all this in perspective. Like the sanctions recently on Russia. You know how much of a mess that was and still continues to be uh, for <laughs> pretty much everyone that trades commodities, <laughs> grain, uh, gas. Like it, it, It's super hard to... The implementation of these things is very hard. Like like even today, like, you know, there's still un- so much uncertainty that like, you know, ships are not leaving the dock. You know, pipelines are at 20, 30, 40% of their capacity because... There's just not a way to like for a bank to like like process a, a a payment or a fee on top because then they fear that they're going to like violate these sanctions. In a very idealistic case, I'm just going to put it out there: if you had everything flowing through crypto rails programmatically, like through programmable money, identified wallets, then it'd probably be easier to enforce sanctions. Probably be easier to see flows and monitor activity than what you have in the traditional financial system, which is a patchwork of things that are not, don't communicate very easily with each other. It's sure the SWIFT network. We had a great episode talk about that way back. It is very hard. And so that's kind of like, you know, we'll get there at some point, but I would, if I, if I'm a regulator, um, I would much rather, I I think what I'm trying to say is sanctions are easier to enforce in a yeah. perfectly transparent financial system with programmable money. And that's how, not a bad thing, candidly. No, true, true. I mean, I, I, how, uh, how bad is this for someone like Maker, right? A huge percentage of their collateral is USDC. I think this is how it works. But I, again, I mean, there's this is a kind of classic US regulator. There, there's so much uncertainty. So like there's not, I'm, I'm really not sure how this works. But, you know, if some U- tainted USDC gets into the smart contract that deposits USDC and mints the die, can that not be used at exchanges now? Yeah, but I, I think maybe I'm being too optimistic here. But like, I think regulators have increasingly understood that this is a pretty impactful 
technological revolution and they want to take their time to regulate it in a sensible manner. But what is the motivation to shut down Maker? Like, or to make, you know what I mean? Like, I think I, I don't want to over, like start panicking because I do think Tornado is just, it's just front and center. It's 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 like it's like at the edge, right? It's it's easy to perhaps they think to chop off, but like you're left wondering, like wh- what is the motivation for a regulator to come in and try to shut down something like Maker? I don't know. I, I don't see, I don't see like it it happening. Well, but I mean, I'm sure maybe they wake up one day they want to do it. But yeah, if, if there's like a tainted wallet and you already have identified that then there's not much you can do other than say, wait a minute, the smart contract you can't shut down. You maybe can try to do something on the front end level. But, you know, as we know, that's not the solution. The real kind of solution really is whenever these entities need to pay real world costs, well, try to monitor and put pressure on the end, on the off ramp. To me, that's always been, I get, I, I think DeFi is going to be permissioned mostly KYC at some point. And so you identify these funds and then you regulate the, ent- the, the the entry points of this transparent system. Because if you really do a good job at that point, then you understand exactly what's going on. And it's almost like if you're a criminal, sure, if you're like a, a, a hacker group, like, yeah, these are honeypots, you're going to try to go after them. Cashing out is where I think you should really put emphasis in the same way that you know you regulate banks you know folks like hsbc and start standard chartered and deutsche bank like they get inspected there's rules there's regulations it still happens right i mean you know they get fined all the time for money laundering you know that's a human fault uh humans can be corrupted i guess but but you see what i'm saying like i think that like if i were talking to a regular right now i'd say wait a minute let's put pressure on exchanges absolutely let's focus on that make sure that it's very near impossible for these wallets that you've already identified because oh by the way it's a perfectly transparent system you you kind of can use these tracing solutions like chain analysis the problem of course is the tornado you see now in in that flow they're like oh wait a minute but tornado makes it really hard because if you bring back funds back to the exchange you can kind of get away with it but it's like wait wait a minute with with tornado i think the, the fault in the logic is with tornado you can create a, a proof that says here's where my money comes from and it's clean, legit. And I think that's where they use that, again, the analogy, a chainsaw to go after this, as opposed to saying, go to the exchanges and say, maybe you, you can't accept funds that come from Tornado. You just need to make sure that you check these boxes, that they provide this proof. And unless someone comes in the pot and says to me, that's not possible, I don't see why the version of continuing to allow privacy-preserving solutions and mixers that allow for this proof to be generated they can they can they can unveil and and reveal the origin of the funds as long as that's true then then these two worlds coexist and law enforcement is happy i think but mm. tell me where i'm wrong i mean let's let's play this out let's do a little thought experiment and eric peters from uh, one river talked about this on the podcast recently we'll we'll throw a link in the show notes to that to that episode it feels like we're on this inevitable path to kyc right so a little thought experiment you take all of today's defi protocols Uniswap, Aave, Synthetics, you take all you take all the blue chip DeFi protocols, or screw it, you take all of them, you fork them, you add a KYC requirement. What happens to the flow of capital, do you think? It increases order magnitude or two. Because finally, entities that want to operate in the system are going to feel comfortable. People like Eric will want to use these things in a permission context. Because yeah. if the pool is is KYC'd, you know your counterparty. There's so many people that are on the fence. How much capital do you think is is waiting to interact in the system, but hasn't because of the same reason that Eric? Told you know us what this is, Santi? This is a this is a uh, standoff right now between the folks who were in crypto for the last decade, folks who believe in self sovereignty, liber- libertarian ideals, uh, uh, anti KYC, AML, pro privacy, things like that. This is a standoff between kind of the 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 anarchist crowd of crypto that I have a lot of sympathy and empathy for and the the new crowd who's coming in saying, "Look, this is not about ideals, this is not about any of that. 
kind of libertarian and anything like that this what this is about is just a better technology and, and and improving the system and saying that our traditional capital market system is broken uh and that we don't have the right technologies in place uh to introduce things like scarcity uh to to a digital environment oh, yeah. into a, a a global first world mm-hmm. and though those are the two camps that are battling right now it's not really going to matter right because i don't see a world where this doesn't happen um, I agree with you. I mean, there will always perhaps will exist uh, this this wild west of DeFi, but it is going to be uh, such a small corner in the grand scheme of things. Um, look, if you really want to, the, the the privacy hack right now is send your coins to an exchange and then and then send them back to another wallet if you want to continue to operate on chain. And you know, I personally have not used Tornado ever thinking that there was a possibility that said differently, I've heard of funds that have shielded their Zcash and feds come knocking on their door because only a very small subset of people are shielding. And so if you're shielding it, you're giving, you're sort of like, it is suspicious, right? Right. If you buy Zcash, even on something like Coinbase, you are, there's no privacy right there. No, you need to shield it. Right. Or I guess before they upgrade, like it was not shielded by default. And so if you shielded it, it raised, rightfully so, right? I'm just going to raise it. It's like if you walk in a store right now and pay with cash, like a $10,000 handbag or whatever. Well, you know, like with wads of 20, I'm sorry, but this <laughs> is going to raise all kinds of alarms and you're going to report that. And it's the same way, right? I mean, if people want to do privacy, send it to an exchange and send it to another wallet. And so I think that's also perhaps, perhaps that's, I don't want to say, perhaps that's what regulators are seeing, which is most of the activity that's happening on Tornado is from people that, you know, had the option to send it to an exchange where they would be easily identified, but instead use Tornado. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying it's not super accurate because there are counterparty risks, the risk of sending it to an exchange, you're taking some level of risk. I understand some people may not want to do that and may rather interact with a smart contract, but still. As sitting in the investor seat and in, in, in your seat right now, Santi, does this help or hurt privacy-focused chains? Does this make you more or less likely to invest in privacy-focused uh, things like L1s and L2s? I still want to explore and invest in things that um, are layer, like our privacy layer on top of a very popular L1 like Ethereum. Um, and and I think we should just place a ton of emphasis on the ability to have privacy while at the same time being able to unshield it and reveal origin of funds and be regulatorily yeah. compliant. I don't see these two things as mutually exclusive. I see them coexisting. It's just a matter of education. It's a matter of, I think the technology is there, like a zero knowledge proof or, or some sort of ring or some sort of signature. Anyways, what I'm trying to say is it is possible. We just need to have the right dialogue. And look, these things sometimes need to happen. And I think Tornado got big enough and and because of these recent hacks was put into question. And a lot of times, you know, I think we can go back and now directly talk to regulators because it has opened up a discussion. And that's, I think, the, 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 the bright side of all this is that it's going to force a discussion between people within crypto and regulators to talk about privacy, to talk about these solutions. And some of these... Things are pretty technical and hard to understand. And so um, it's just going to take time. Coinbase earnings, curve front end hack, mm-hmm. or update on the Uniswap fee switch. Where do you want to go? Or ETH proof of work chain. <laughs> Where do you want to go? Uh, I mean, the, the, the curve hack is quick to cover, and then we can do Coinbase and then the rest, I guess. Great. Yeah. Uh, Curve, two minutes on Curve. Just update folks. Curve confirmed reports that its website had suffered a front end attack on Tuesday. Uh, Basically, hackers apparently compromised uh, the Curve website or the Curve domain name to kind of redirect users or or their transactions to a malicious destination. This is called uh, uh, DNS spoofing. They cloned the site. They made the DNS point to their IP where the clone site is deployed. They added approval request to a malicious contract. I think they made off with about a half a million in ETH uh, that they then sent to, uh, speaking of mixers, um, I, actually, no, I think they sent it to a centralized exchange. Fixed float 
exchange. I, I don't actually know the fixed float, um, but fixed float said it froze about two hundred thousand dollars of the of the half million. Um, the Curve Twitter account tweeted last night that the issue had been found and reverted. Um, yeah, I don't. I mean, it's cra- there are a lot of hacks these days. A lot of little things like this, and they they they. There's so many different uh, vectors for for and points of attack, um, whether it's the front end, whether it's a uh, smart contract risk. Um, but it does remind you that we're running these DeFi protocols. But you know, 99.99% of users access access it through web pages that are hosted on traditional centralized infrastructure. So um, long way to go until all this is uh, not run by these centralized yeah. providers. Quick reminder: if you're ever approving something new in a, in a protocol front end that you constantly use immediate red flag like immediate and always check whatever it is the contract that you're interacting with always 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 say, say that again Santi, really, say, that, say that in more detail anytime that you go to a bookmarked site pro, front end of a protocol that you're using curve uniswap whatever sushi uh, maker <clears throat> anytime there's a new pop-up if you will on metamask that says approve new contract immediate red flag like like Stop everything. Do not click. Go to Twitter. Go to their comms and ask, why am I being asked to sign this new contract? Approval. Anytime you're signing a new approval, you have to inspect the contract. And if you're not technical enough to understand what you're signing, don't sign it. It can wait. Always. It can wait. Ask. Go to Discord. And it's literally in five minutes you'll get an answer. And if you don't get an answer, don't sign. Right Write these things down, put them on the left side of your screen, notes, whatever you want to do. Big, just don't approve stuff if you don't know what you're approving and ask. Play dumb. It never, it never goes to your advantage in this space to act like you know what you're doing. It's always better to act dumb or be dumb like preach. (laughs) Uh, Coinbase, Coinbase has had a volatile year between uh, just the market crashing, its stocks down like 60, 70% on the year. At one point, it was down like I think 80%, the market sentiment asking if crypto has missed or if Coinbase kind of missed its first mover opportunity. Uh, they just released earnings yesterday. Here's the deal. Coinbase announced Q2 earnings on Tuesday. They missed projections again uh, with $803 million in revenue on the quarter, down from $1.2 billion in Q1, so $400 million uh, decrease from Q1 to Q2 in revenue. Um Revenue from uh, some interesting stats here. Revenue from subscription and services came in at about 150 million, down 3% from Q1, uh, up 44% year over year. Uh, it's interesting to see just Coinbase, even though it's only uh, it's a small percentage of their of their revenue. It's a seems to be a big emphasis for Coinbase. Probably smart due to the volatility of transaction fee revenue. Um, what else is interesting? Nine million monthly transaction transacting users down from 9.2 in Q1 and 11 in Q4 lost 1.1 billion dollars uh, uh, they've got about 5,000 full-time employees paying roughly four billion dollars a year for them uh, this was an interesting one retail represented only represents about 20 percent of trading volume yet 94 percent of their trading revenue nothing new here. Uh, but just a reminder that the exchanges make a lot of their money from retail. Again, 20% of the trading volume came from retail. 94% from uh, of their revenue was from retail. So, um, I, I mean, not many, not, not too much that's interesting in my mind. Um, interesting takeaways would probably be like similar to our conversation about Uniswap. Like fees eventually trend towards zero for all. Maybe maybe take Uniswap out of this because I know you disagreed with me there. But like for all these centralized. Uh, crypto infrastructure providers' fees eventually trend towards zero, not just for crypto, but TD Ameritrade, E-Trade, Charles Schwab, Robinhood, Cash App, fees trend to zero over time. It's clear that Coinbase is fighting to make their wallet services, Coinbase Cloud, staking, mm-hmm. subscription, uh, a much larger percent of their revenue. Um, you can kind of think yep. about this as like media companies today. Like I saw the New York Times, chart of the New York Times revenue used to be all ad-based no subscription. Yeah. Now all media companies are racing to get subscription revenue while their ad revenue continues to fall. It feels similar to what yeah. financial services companies are doing. So Yeah, absolutely. If you're doing like a new model, updating your model on Coinbase, I think you have to factor in, most importantly, new new streams of income. Because as you point out, there is going to be a race to the bottom, especially on the institutional side of the house, where it's more competitive. You know, Folks like FTX and Binance are increasingly competing 
and try to lure business. Um, and, and, you know, I think the value is still Coinbase has is it is synonymous with crypto, at least in the US. It has, I think you have to, there is value in those users and that um, brand recognition, regulatory modes and what have you and licenses. Um, I'd be paying attention to uh, how much, particularly staking revenue grows over the next year. Uh, if you believe, again, proof of stake, Ethereum migrating to proof of stake, a lot of institutions might want to stake their ETH, earn the yield on that, um, staking rewards. And so I think uh, that might become, and, and to my knowledge, Coinbase charges 20% of staking rewards. And so that is, and they acquired Bison Trails. And so that is <clears throat> perhaps going to be a big line item in the similar manner that AWS became such a such a profit generator for Amazon, which wasn't very profitable on on kind of the the retail front facing side of the house, but AWS has been a, a monster for them and really has helped them grow and, and reach profitability. And so I, I think that's the similar evolution that Coinbase and other exchanges might go through. Um, you have to believe that they sort of add on different kind of business lines and ca- again they've captured attention, they have the user. How, how can you cross sell, upsell them in other lines of businesses, um, gaming, NFTs, create other stuff? Uh, the question, of course, is what the hell are these all employees doing at Coinbase? My God, they have terrible customer support. Like literally, have, I don't know what these people are doing. It feels like a bloated. It feels like a bloated organization. And uh, so, look, I mean, I have obviously sympathy for the people that have been laid off, but you know that to me is just puts in a question leadership. Like time and time again, these people get really caught up and, and over hire and to really capture the market. I'm like, what are you doing? Like it feels, it feels like a very bloated organization. So uh, maybe an activist shop is going to come knocking on their door and saying, Hey guys, like bring in a new management team, bring in more professionalism. And, and um, I wouldn't be surprised if someone like Elliot comes knocking on their door. Yeah. I went, <clears throat> I went on a walk. Um, I went on, what day is it? I went on a walk with, uh, with, a senior Coinbase person on this, on Monday of this week went on a walk around uh, in Brooklyn for like an hour. Just got a little coffee and and cruised around. Uh, and this was the day before their earnings came out. And he was just I was just talking to him about the culture at Coinbase and what it's like to work there. He said it used and he's been there for a while. He said it used to be a lot of just like ship products. Don't worry about how good a product is. Like get the MVP out the door. Ship ship ship. And you used to see that. Like Coinbase used to roll out new products all the time. Uh, and now it's much slower. And obviously that's the nature of growing a company. But he said it's a lot of slide decks now, a lot of strategy decisions, a lot of like these big kind of esoteric conversations about like who is the user for different products. They need to get back to just ship, ship, ship mode. So I do, his feed, his feedback too was Brian's on that page, but a lot of the maybe executive team, it doesn't feel like is on that page. So that's the problem when you bring in a bunch of, Big fancy Web two execs. I mean, uh, I, I, uh, yeah. I mean, a lot of MBAs, you know, just uh, doing Porter five forces and all this crap. I mean, that never used DeFi before and just or, or bought an NFT and they're just you know opining about the crap that they learn in MBA courses. And you know what it is like? Just there's nothing like using these things. Uh, my group at JP Morgan was was uh, a nice one because we never had associates or VPs. It was just you directly dealt with an, an ED or MD and you know, it was, a, it was a lot of work, but it, it cut all that fat, all that middle layer, which is, in yep. my opinion, this is fat. Trim I mean, it. those are usually the first folks to go at, uh, when, when banks lay off folks is the, are the VPs. The I mean, no are... associate in investment banking. They don't want to, it's like, it's like, it's like you're in the middle of a butt. It's like the butt crack, right? You don't want to get your hands dirty and look at the model, but you feel like you're like, you know, I don't know, like a god because you came out Kinda of hot business shit. school yep. and you know yep. everything there is to know about the life. You got to figure it out. But then they don't – it's just like a – look, guys, at some point you have to go up the ladder. I get it. <laughs> but can you just like go from, I don't know, Occam's Razor like point A to point Z, C and skip the B part? <laughs> like, I don't know. Associates are worthless, I think, in investment banking. But I don't know how the Coinbase culture works. <laughs> That's it for Coinbase. Uh, two other things to pay attention to, and then we'll wrap this up. The Uniswap fee switch trial governance proposal was approved on Tuesday, adding a 10% protocol fee to three different Uniswap pools. Test pairs, DAI and ETH are at five BIPs, ETH and USDT, uh, 30 BIPs, USDC, ETH, one basis, uh, 100 basis points. Um, 
I mean, this is just something to pay attention to. Uniswap is obviously playing around with what the fee model looks like. All accrued value is going to remain in the protocol until governance agrees on the best use of of funds via votes. Uh, Second vote to turn off the fee switch will be submitted 120 days, four months after this vote passes. Uh, So this just, I mean, this is a smart move on Uniswap's behalf, I think. I I really like this move. Uh, Just basically testing the model. Get it out, ship a minimum viable product, see what works. Three four months later, re- review it and mm-hmm. see if see what see what they think here. Uh, and then there's another uh, thing in uh, Uniswap governance, which is another proposal to allocate 74 million in uni to create and fund a foundation. Uh, this is also, I'm sure, going to pass, um, but just another thing to pay attention to. Yeah, yeah, I, I do like this uh, iteration process. Um, it's a lot of money, 74 million. Uh, I read the proposal. I think there's some good elements to that, uh, but it does feel like a lot upfront. Maybe it should be a bit staged. Um, and uh, it will be interesting after 120 days how governance is going to determine what the best use of funds is going to be and uh, who weighs in on that, who's active on that. Maybe it's part of also creating this foundation and bringing in more leadership that can be stewards of these capital and create certain pods that can um, you know, receive some of this capital and uh but yeah like i wasn't like particularly like the, U- the uniswap i think education right they, they created a fund earlier this year to divert towards like lobbying efforts and they were dispersing you know, pretty significant sums of money to organ different organizations that were advocating for you know crypto and <clears throat> lobbying efforts um and so yeah um uh, we'll we'll have to track this and you know see how after 120 days how this goes down creating a foundation this is basically just helps them be able to ship faster gives that it provides grants to builders researchers organizers academics analysts just basically anything that will help grow the protocol and they don't have to go through any sort of voting process is that correct through a foundation it's more like it's like a Del- it's a delaware c corp right it's like a delaware c corp they've got like a team of people who vote internally it operates more like a company um Kind of, yeah. So, like, his, just for context, like, there is this, like, the Uniswap Grants Program. Uh, that was created, um, um, I think, in 2020. So, when, when Uni launched kind of the token and sort of like, hey, here's the grants program community, you vote, um, you have responsibility. And as members of this DAO, you, you can influence how we, you know, give out these grants. That program has been fairly successful, I think. Like they, they've <clears throat> granted like 120, over 120 grantees, um, I think over 22 different governance proposals. And so I think a lot of those have been pro- pro- proposals and projects that are going to amplify, uh, you know, Uniswap and your experience using the protocol, tooling solutions, like, you know, how to visualize like impermanent loss and all these different things. So um, that that has been pretty interesting. Their argument now is there is still a lot of friction that goes on in, in that process and giving those grants. And so they want to create perhaps a more autonomous organization foundation that um, has more degrees of freedom to kind of have a set uh, kind of discretion over funds, uh, bring on good leadership, and then just kind of execute on, on particular kind of missions and, and proposals and projects. And so, um, yeah, again, it's the same the same objective here is to continue to give grants to builders, anyone that it wants to kind of support and build around the Uniswap ecosystem. Um, and and so I think it's just more removing some of the friction that you've seen historically in governance. Like it, it's not very realistic to have every uni, like all uni holders discuss, like governance forums can be a bit of a mess and be very kind of uh, disparate. And so I think this is just, bringing in some sort of hierarchy, some sort of independent organization that can take more responsibility, more leadership other than Uniswap labs, if you will, to support and grow the protocol with these funds that are being collected. Yeah. Last thing, and then we'll wrap it up with the merge coming up. There's a growing debate about what's going to happen with the ETH proof of work chain. Uh, Are miners going to continue on the chain? Uh, How much value is the market going to assign to ETH proof of work? Will exchanges add ETH proof of work or keep it? Uh, USDC has already stated that they're only going to redeem USDC from the ETH proof of stake chain after the merge. Um, uh, This feels like a pretty silly 
conversation. It feels like they're the miners are just trying to to milk the last bits of uh, a value out of the out of the ETH proof of work chain. Um, I feel like it doesn't really have any technical merit. They're going to try to frame it as this like ideological battle, uh, despite the ETH roadmap being pretty clear. Uh, feels kind of like some like Bitcoin maxi stuff going on right here. But curious if you think the uh, the ETH proof of work chain has has any merit. I don't. And historically, I think a lot of these forks haven't had merit. <clears throat> okay, you could argue uh, Ethereum Classic, you know, has still $8 billion market cap, but that's jump change relative to Ethereum proper that we know ETH today, $225 million market, like, million market cap. Um, I think it's a distraction. Um, and and I think some of them will take it as an opportunity to make their cash grab. Um, so anyways, yeah. I, I think, uh, yeah, I'm not... Not really supportive of it. Actually, not supportive of it. Yeah, I'm firmly not supportive of it. Um, I think the way to think about something like an, like some of these uh, some of these forks uh, that actually don't the the minority chains. The way to think about minority chains is imagine an accounting team that has created an Excel to project a company's revenue next year. So you've got this like the master doc at the company. Any team member at the, at the company can basically just copy the Excel, create a new version. So you've got like V1, V2, V3, V100, V200, change a few parameters, try to convince the team to use to use the new Excel sheet. Uh, all these Excel sheets can exist simultaneously, but really the only valuable Excel sheet is the one that the majority of the team agrees to use. Uh, and I think you're just seeing this like this minority chain is like V97 just uh, like no nobody nobody cares about this thing except for a small minority which is like a small team at the company it's a small minority which is really just the miners here who are trying to extract value that's my take would be would be curious about why i'm wrong if anyone's listening and doesn't agree no look i welcome all kind of criticisms i'll tell you one thing this is why i've historically when i first learned about proof of stake to me it felt like a more natural balanced way to reach consensus where a proof of work, I understand. Look, I don't think it goes away. I think there's only probably one proof of work dominant network, and that's Bitcoin. But the idea to have a, a, a force within the community, within the ecosystem, that is constantly selling to recoup uh, their capex investment to miners. To me, I feel like miners don't necessarily have the best interest at heart, long term interest of the protocol. Whereas to me, it just felt more natural to have the people that are securing the chain also are long-term believers, i.e. token holders that are willing to stake for a certain period of time to secure and validate the locks. To me, that is all, to me that this just feels more intuitive, more sustainable uh, model. Um, and if you look back, you know, a lot of times in the Bitcoin case, in the Ethereum case, miners have been, I, I think they're like vocal shareholders. And I always welcome criticism and a vocal shareholder, but they historically haven't been the most aligned with the community. And and right, look, I understand why because they need to, you know, they have their own interests at heart, and they want to, you know, make sure that they're profitable organizations. I, I get it, but yeah, to me, it just further reinforces the transition to proof of stake is the right one uh, because I think it just puts more into harmony. Uh, the people that want to believe in the protocol long term that are also securing the network long. And, and so to me, that's always felt like a, a better, more symbiotic relationship. Agreed. Agreed. Shall we wrap, sir? Uh, one last thing I want to point out. <clears throat> uh, pretty interesting. Arbitrum launched uh, Nitro, I think it is. Um, and on in conjunction with that, uh, pretty interesting. Reddit uh, is rolling out these kind of community points. Um, um, and... And so it's a pretty cool use case. I think um, these as quote quote community point system awards users based on the quality of their posts. Uh, it's kind of like a steam it, but like now with Reddit, uh, but it's interesting that obviously they chose Ethereum and then they chose Arbitrum. Um, and so it's, um, it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out and it's Arbitrum Nova that just launched. And so, uh, right. yeah, I think you're seeing important to note that I, I bring this up because you're seeing a lot of activity in these L2s. Um, and, you know, bringing on a giant like Reddit and being able to support that in their own, uh, is pretty, pretty impressive. Uh, it's something to monitor, um, if the chain can support it, if, if, if that, 
experience is smooth, then what does that mean, right? You're all of a sudden bringing on this community points to millions of users. Um, the, I would be really curious to understand what else may they want to do after they start earning these community points. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, I'm I glad that you called this out, right? You remember in the early days, like in 2016, 2017, 2018, like people would oftentimes point to, would use Reddit points as the example of this like web two product that should get tokenized. And then, you know, here we are five years later, Reddit points are launching on, on Arbitrum Nova. Uh, it's yeah. really cool. It's just an example of like, it may be that a lot of the things that we thought were really cool to be implemented in a Web3 context were too early and it is worth revisiting, not just totally discrediting it. In the similar manner that pets.com was a great idea, terrible execution at the wrong time. And now you have, or Petco, you know, now you have, you know, a pretty successful business, right? And so I think we'll see a lot of that in in crypto. Um, And I think the tech uh, will be increasingly ready uh, for gaming, for social, for paint, micropayments, for a lot of these things that haven't necessarily worked before, but are starting to work and will increasingly so uh, as, as scalability solutions um, uh, become more robust. Agreed. Let's wrap, sir. Uh, if anyone's listening and has not bought a ticket yet to the Digital Asset Summit, BlockWorks' institutional conference, macro conference, crypto conference coming up September 14th and 15th, I want to say. I better get that one right. Um, it's in New York. It might be 17th and 18th. I'm going to really screw this one up. So go hit that. The man, the man to get doesn't the, even to have get the, the dates for his own the, All right, hold on, hold on, hold on. This is bad. This is going to be really Garrett, bad. Our marketing team is going to be... Oh, it's 13th and 14th. Yeah, it's 30, September 13th and 14th. The Glass House, I, New I York just, City. A thousand people. Get out of here, Santi. You haven't attended any I'm not even going, but yet. I even knew that. Shame on you. you You've got a code Yano250. Yano250. Go get it. The reason I'm plugging this so hard, I've got a competition going internally. Whoever's got the most people registering with their code gets a free dinner. Just if you register me. with Yano250, ping me and I'll I'll take you out to dinner or something. There you go. No, there we go. The bribes have begun. All right, the bribes have begun. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for, Santi, much this is great, for tuning man. in. Uh, stay safe, everyone. And uh, yeah, keep enjoying the summer, I guess. 